Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A prehistoric monster holds the clue to an Ice Age puzzle. Strange iron relics that are the last links to a catastrophic natural disaster. The people on the train didn't stand a chance. A curious wooden figure, the explanation for a 60-year-old mystery, or the key to a cover-up. We're looking up. Why can't they be looking down at us? Across the United States, in the nation's most revered institutions, our celebrated history is on display. Wondrous treasures from the past. Bizarre relics. But behind every amazing artifact is another tale to be told and a secret waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Los Angeles, California. In the heart of one of the city's bustling business districts is a unique museum located on the site of a bizarre natural phenomenon. This is the Page Museum, and these are the world-famous La Brea Tar Pits. We're called the La Brea Tar Pits, but there's no tar here. It's asphalt. It's crude oil that comes up through cracks in the earth, and as the lighter material evaporates off, we're left with a black, sticky mess. A sticky mess that is also an ancient graveyard. Carefully cataloged in the stacks of the Page Museum are over four million ancient bones that have been recovered from the site. These primordial relics are the last link to the fantastical creatures that once roamed Southern California and are the source of constant fascination for paleobiologist Trevor Valley. I can't lie, this is the coolest job on the planet. 
It's like working in a massive jigsaw puzzle. A puzzle made up of the remains of all kinds of prehistoric animals found right here. From Colombian mammoths, creatures that towered over the modern elephant, to dire wolves, vicious dog-like killers that prowled the prehistoric forest in huge packs. But among the jaws, teeth, and claws, one specimen stands out. The beast that wielded these nine-inch dagger-like canines was North America's most ferocious predator. They can only belong to one of the most disturbingly terrifying animals, a 750-pound eating machine. The super predator of the Ice Age, it's Smilodon, the saber-toothed cat. We call them saber-toothed cats for a reason, because Smilodon fatalis is the fatal knife tooth. Among the largest, heaviest cats that ever lived, saber-toothed cats ruled the Ice Age food chain. Though often mistaken as a type of tiger, the saber-tooth was closer in build to the modern-day lion, with one important distinction. Most carnivores, like lions, only open their mouth about 65 degrees, and well, right now you have a problem. The teeth get in the way. But saber-toothed cats can actually open their jaws 120 degrees. The last thing you see is blood dripping off its canines as you die. Hundreds of these razor-sharp teeth have been excavated from the tar pits. But one question has intrigued scientists. How did they all get here? Why are the remains of so many massive predators located in this particular site? The answers lie in the bubbling ooze of the La Brea tar pits. Southern California, 10,000 BC, the end of the Fourth Ice Age. Massive glaciers are slowly melting across continental America. The area we now know as Los Angeles is covered in cool, damp forest and fields. The climate during the, the latter half of the Ice Age here was a lot different than it is now. You've got morning breeze coming in, bringing the fog, all of these just big, tall trees mixed with grasslands. And then up into the mountains, we've got these massive redwoods. And roaming wild through this luscious habitat are the biggest mammals the world has ever seen. With the super predator, the saber-toothed cat, at the top of the food chain. But in this ancient ecosystem, there is one trap even the saber-toothed cat can fall prey to. The La Brea tar pits. An animal walking by may think it's a pool of water or they just don't see it. They walk right through it, they get stuck. And the more the trapped animal struggles to free itself, the deeper it sinks. If you're trumpeting for help, you're calling the rest of the herd, but you're immediately a target for any carnivore and saber-toothed cats and start coming in going, look, lunch. It's chaos on an unparalleled scale. Saber-toothed cats jumping on the back of it. American lions pacing the side. It's just, it's a zoo gone bad. But once they enter the oily slime, the predators too fall victim to the sticky clutches of the La Brea tar pit. They would start to get stuck, like a fly to flypaper. It would be a horrible death. You could take days to die. And when predator and prey finally succumb to the pits, 
the oil seeps into the dead creature's bones, preserving them for millennia. For every one herbivore we find, we find seven to 10 carnivores. There's so many bones, so many animals, they're all packed in here, and we end up with a massive collection. Though these oil-stained relics are remnants of a traumatic struggle between life and death thousands of years ago, without them, we would never know of the wondrous ancient creatures that roamed America long before we did. While the Page Museum and the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles, California, hold secrets from the end of the last ice age, across the country in Dayton, Ohio, the National Museum of the United States Air Force holds an artifact that played a key role in ushering in the nuclear age. But how did chance play a role in the single act that sealed the fate of thousands? The answer coming up on Mysteries at the Museum. Dayton, Ohio. The birthplace of aviation. It was home to the fathers of man flight, Orville and Wilbur Wright. In keeping with its high-flying heritage, Dayton is also home to the National Museum of the United States Air Force. The museum boasts a stunning display of extraordinary aircraft. From President Kennedy's Air Force One to the SR-71, one of the fastest planes on the planet. But for the historian Jeff Underwood, one aircraft stands out beyond all others. It is the Boeing B-29 Super Fortress Bomber known as Boxcar. The B-29 Bomber is 99 feet long and it has a wingspan of 141 feet. It's a big airplane. It was the culmination of American military aviation technology in 1944 and 45. During World War II, the B-29 specialized in high-altitude, long-range bombing missions on targets across the Pacific. It had the range, it had the bomb load, it had the trained crews necessary to deliver strikeout blows to any enemy anywhere in the world. But among the hundreds of B-29s that ruled the skies during World War II, Boxcar stands alone. In one mission, this aircraft changed the course of world history forever. This is the plane that dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, the act that ended World War II. But this apocalyptic event almost never happened. How did fate and circumstance play a part in the flight that altered history? August 6th, 1945. World War II has been raging for six years. In order to bring the conflict to a swift end, the U.S. deploys the single deadliest weapon ever used. It drops an atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Tens of thousands of people are killed instantly. But despite the devastation to one of its most important cities, the Japanese military command refuses to yield. The Japanese government operated under the code that they would not surrender. It was going to take something truly stupendous to force the military leaders to back down. President Truman decides there is no other option. 
the only way to force the Japanese to surrender is to detonate another nuclear weapon. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. Codename Fat Man. This device weighs nearly 10,000 pounds and is 40% more powerful than the one dropped on Hiroshima. The target is a huge military base near the Japanese city of Kokura. The job of deploying the weapon is given to the B-29 bomber, Boxcar. But before Boxcar is even airborne, the operation is plagued by setbacks. The mission ran into problems almost from the very beginning. A fuel pump breaks down, and the aircraft can only take on just enough fuel to get to the target and back. Not having this fuel meant the timing had to be perfect. There was no room for error. Then, as the bomber gets closer to the target, visibility begins to deteriorate. As boxcar approaches Kokura, they see a haze covering the city. The crew has specific orders that they have to see their target to be able to drop the bomb on it. With visibility poor and their fuel running out, the crew must make a critical decision. Abort the mission now or keep flying and drop the bomb on a different target, but risk running out of fuel. Determined to complete the mission, the crew head toward a pre-assigned secondary target, the industrial city of Nagasaki. They turn toward Nagasaki, looking all the time at the fuel gauges, knowing they're running out of fuel. This fateful decision will reshape the history of the world. But as Boxcar approaches the city, a new problem arises. Nagasaki is also shrouded in clouds. With their fuel running out, the crew cannot wait for the conditions to clear. It appears the mission is over. But just at the very last moment, the bombardier sees a break in the clouds. Lady Luck finally throws the dice in his way, and he can see the city. The moment is right. The time cannot pass. They cannot wait. Boxcar drops the bomb. And they look back and they see the rising mushroom cloud. They know they've done their job. The mission is complete. When Boxcar touches down, it has just seven gallons of fuel to spare. Six days later, the Japanese surrender. The crew of Boxcar brought an end to the Second World War. But at a tremendous cost. The city of Nagasaki is annihilated. The nuclear age has truly dawned. And the world will never be the same again. Now decades since its fateful flight, Boxcar's engines are silent. Its majestic steel and glass body carefully preserved here in the Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. This magnificent aircraft stands not just as an example of aviation engineering at its best, but more importantly, as a solemn remembrance of the terrible price of war. 
Over 600 miles away at the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York, there lies a reminder of a very different period in our history. A relic that harkens back to an ancient time before written history, whose astonishing discovery would fuel a debate questioning the very origins of mankind. Next on Mysteries at the Museum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nestled in the tranquil countryside of upstate New York is the tiny village of Cooperstown. This idyllic spot is home to a unique institution that celebrates our nation's agrarian past, the Cooperstown Farmers Museum. But among the plows and pitchforks is a strange artifact that seems totally out of place. It's about 10 and a half feet long. It's solid stone, you know, throughout and it is shaped like a man. But what is this giant? And where did it come from? The tale of this mysterious monolith begins more than a century ago in the nearby village of Cardiff, New York. October 16, 1869. A cattle farmer named Stubb Newell is preparing his land for the winter. He hires some local men to dig a well in one of his fields. They were digging for a little while when all of a sudden their shovels struck a, a solid object. 
As they continued to dig around the object, they realized that it was a foot. Fearing they are about to make a gruesome discovery, the men continue digging. As the excavation deepens, the limbs of an otherworldly figure slowly come into view. Finally, they unearth what appears to be the body of an astonishing creature. They looked down and beheld what they had uncovered, and very quickly they realized that they had discovered a giant. A massive human form, perfectly preserved in solid stone. It gave the men the sense that they were looking at something very old, something that had been there for a very long time. Word of the discovery quickly spreads and soon crowds start to gather at Stub Newell's farm to behold the bizarre creature. Sensing an opportunity to make some money, Newell erects a tent over the giant and begins charging admission. Within weeks of the giant's discovery, it had very quickly become a major, major news story. The press names the remarkable creature after the nearby town of Cardiff and the Cardiff giant is born. But the question on everyone's lips is, what exactly is this thing? And how did it get here? Some believe the giant to be a prehistoric sculpture that points to the existence of an undiscovered American civilization. Others see the fossilized remains of a real giant. Some believe that the giant was once a living, breathing being, and at some point it had, it had died, and through some mysterious act of nature, it had turned to stone. Either way, the implications are revolutionary. The very origins of human civilization seem to rest on the identity of the strange humanoid form. Americans at that time really measured themselves against their European counterparts. And all of a sudden, the Cardiff giant comes upon the scene and it, and it implies a, an epic and a vast prehistory. And this wondrous possibility, that the birthplace of human civilization may not have been ancient Egypt or Greece, but Cardiff, New York. A continuous stream of paying patrons come to Stub Newell's tent to see for themselves. He had people coming from not just all over New York. There were people coming from all up and down the East Coast. The giant is such a lucrative attraction that it even catches the attention of notorious showman P.T. Barnum, who cashes in on the phenomenon by constructing his own giant, charging admission and claiming that his is the original and Stub Newell's Cardiff giant is a fake. Little did anyone know how prescient P.T. Barnum's claim would turn out to be. February 10, 1870. A Chicago newspaper receives a letter from a sculptor who claims he was paid to carve the Cardiff giant. Could the giant really be a fake? And if so, who could be behind such an outrageous hoax? The sculptor points the finger at a cunning New York businessman named George Hull, a close relative of Cardiff farmer Stub Newell. Hull was very enamored with his own inventiveness. He really believed that, you know, someday his ingenuity would, would make him a fortune. In 1867, two years before the giant is eventually unearthed, 
Hull concocts a devious plan. He hires a sculptor to carve a massive stone man. Then he and his co-conspirator, Stubb Newell, bury the giant in secret on Stubb's farm. When the giant is discovered and starts turning a profit, Hull and Newell share in the takings. But they are brought down by their own greed. Hull and Newell fail to pay the sculptor who originally carved the giant. And the sculptor takes his revenge by blowing the plot wide open. With its mystery solved, interest in the giant quickly wanes. At this point, it really became little more than just kind of a, a sideshow novelty. But today, the formidable figure is still on display at the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York. Here it lies as a testament not to the enigmatic origins of human civilization, but rather to the imagination and cunning of two kind artists who were tripped up by their own avarice. In 1868, Hull and Newell bury their stone giant in a field in Cardiff, New York. Over 50 years later, on the other side of the country, high in the Cascade Mountains, two very different artifacts would be unearthed in perplexing circumstances. The story of how they got there remains one of the most poignant tragedies of the 20th century. When we return, to mysteries at the museum. Seattle, Washington, once a sleepy fishing village, today this hub of trade and industry is the Pacific Northwest's largest city. And at the Seattle Museum of History and Industry, the artifacts on display chronicle the rise of this metropolis over the last 150 years. But off of the main floor of the museum, buried within its vast archive, is a pair of puzzling objects. Made of molded iron, these two rusting ornaments from the 1890s are remnants of a bygone era. A time of vast expansion westward, new industry, new wealth, and the catalyst for it all, the Great Northern Railroad. These are from one of the Pullman cars. The Pullman cars were kind of the luxury cars on the train, and they were fairly well appointed. They had nice fixtures. Believed to be light brackets, these ornate iron decorations would have adorned the walls of the first-class Pullman cars of the Great Northern's passenger trains. And these probably had some kind of a porcelain or a glass ball around them. In these original state, I would imagine that these were absolutely gorgeous. But what makes these artifacts so unique are not the intricacy of their design, but where they were found. These two objects were discovered by hikers in a wooden ravine nearly 4,000 feet up in the Cascade Mountains. So how did they get there? The story lies in one of the greatest train tragedies in American history. February 22nd, 1910, Spokane, Washington. A winter storm is gathering over the Pacific Northwest. The overnight passenger train, the Seattle Express, and a high-priority mail train are en route to Seattle. 
In the plush first-class Pullman cars, businessmen and families are resting comfortably, unfazed by the growing storm. But all the while, the train is chugging steadily towards the Pacific Northwest's most perilous obstacle, the Cascade Mountains. The Cascade Range is a very tall mountain range. Stevens Pass goes through at about 4,100 feet. Now drifting with snow and blasted by high winds, the mountains are an almost impassable obstacle. But with one train laden with high-priority mail and another carrying wealthy travelers eager to reach Seattle, the trains have to press on. Two days later, the trains are stopped dead just outside of the Cascade Tunnel near the tiny railroad town of Wellington. Heavy snow has buried the tracks. The trains weren't able to move because they were bottlenecked. There were snow slides to the east, there were slides to the west. They were just stuck. Rail crews from Wellington worked tirelessly with steam-driven rotary plows and old-fashioned manual labor to dig out the trains. But they cannot keep up with the blanketing snow. They were waging a war against the weather, and they were losing. It was the worst snowstorm in the recorded history of the Pacific Northwest. For the passengers and crew, there was only one option. They must wait out the storm on the snow-laden mountain. For nearly a week, the anxious and weary train passengers are held hostage by the unending blizzard. Finally, on the evening of February 28th, after six days on the mountain, there is a lull in the storm, allowing the passengers to make plans to hike down to a neighboring town the following morning. Their ordeal appears to finally be over. That night they had a celebration. They sat up talking and laughing, and they went to bed happy because they thought, finally this is going to be over. But for many of the passengers and crew of the two stranded trains, morning never comes. Overnight, a violent lightning storm erupts in the peaks above the tracks. The lightning strike took out the snow on the hill above them. And the snow actually came roaring down the hill. The stranded trains are sitting in the direct path of a colossal avalanche. To hear that coming, it, it would be horrifying. The snow slide is a mile and a half wide, gathering momentum and dragging trees, rocks, and debris in its wake. As soon as that snow let loose on the hillside, the people on the trains didn't stand a chance. When the mangled wreckage of the two trains finally settles in a ravine 100 feet below, the scene is of utter devastation. Of the 125 passengers and crew aboard the two trains, only 24 are found alive. It is the worst avalanche disaster in terms of human life lost in the history of the United States. The tragedy prompts officials to build a new tunnel at a lower elevation, and the tale of the avalanche and the sight of the wreckage fades from memory. 
until the 1960s when hikers stumble upon an eerie scene high in the Cascade Mountains. Sprouting from the lush green earth not far from a long abandoned rail tunnel are rusting remnants of mangled iron. But amid the wreckage, the hikers spot a pair of objects that look surprisingly unscathed. They are these two weathered lighting brackets. The hikers unearth them from their mountain perch and bring them here to the Seattle Museum of History and Industry where they are carefully preserved. Two ghostly reminders of the lives that were lost when a giant of the industrial age succumbed to an even greater power of nature. In Roswell, New Mexico, a very different set of remains found in a rancher's field would spark one of the greatest mysteries America has ever known. Still to come on Mysteries at the Museum. Roswell, New Mexico. Located on Main Street in this dusty desert town is a museum dedicated to one of the greatest scientific questions of our times. Do aliens exist? Theories abound as to the presence of extraterrestrial life, and the International UFO Museum and Research Center has numerous displays dealing with many of them. For museum director Julie Schuster, one exhibit, a lifelike figure enclosed in glass, is at the center of the debate. His name is Harold. He is an anthropomorphic dummy. He is made of metal, wood, and leather. When you walk up to him, you kind of go, what in the world is this? And why is he here? What does this wooden man have to do with UFOs? The answer lies in the enduring mystery of how Roswell, New Mexico, became the UFO capital of the USA. And for some, the site is one of the biggest government cover-ups in history. July 8th, 1947. A rancher named Mac Brazel is tending fences on a remote part of his land. We had a major thunderstorm in the area, and Ranch foreman Mac Brazel went out after the storm to check sheep and fences and make sure everything was where it was supposed to be and came across this huge area of metal debris that wasn't there before. The basic description was metal like nobody had seen before. It was not military. It was not your typical aluminum foil. He described the strange metal-like material. He said it couldn't be burned, it couldn't be torn, it maintained its shape. Also, he described seeing some sort of hieroglyphic-like uh, writing or symbols. He found it very uh, otherworldly. Mac reports his find to officials at the local Roswell Air Force Base. The military immediately dispatches a team to investigate. When the Air Force went with Mac back out to the ranch, it basically was cordoned off and became a military site. A few hours later, the Air Force puts out a press release that shocks the world. They have captured a flying saucer. But no sooner does the news hit the wire than the Air Force's top brass, Lieutenant General Roger M. Ramey, orders a bizarre U-turn. 
The same afternoon of July 8th, um, General Ramey issued a press release saying, no, it was a weather balloon. The people were mistaken. The change of story, quiet speculation, and the incident is forgotten. Until more than 30 years later, 1978, a UFO researcher tracks down an ex-Air Force intelligence officer from Roswell, Major Jesse Marcel. In an interview, Marcel divulges something extraordinary. Marcel originally claimed that the debris he recovered was most certainly not the remains of a weather balloon, and that a crashed alien spaceship had been covered up, and a story about a crashed weather balloon had been put in its place. The claim immediately revives interest in the events of July 1947 and a slew of locals come forward with their own astounding reports of unexplained phenomena. Some mention seeing strange glowing lights in the night sky. One account by an Air Force transport officer on base in Roswell at the time of the incident alleges something amazing. I'm not sure exactly how much he saw, but he saw there were bodies. They were small, like four foot tall. The officer claims to have seen alien bodies transported onto the base. Over the next 20 years, this testimony evolves into a series of fantastic theories of alien autopsies, flying saucers, and government cover-ups. But no one has conclusive proof one way or the other. Finally, in 1995, Pressured by the intense speculation surrounding the 1947 incident, the government responds with an official report. They admit the debris found by Mac Brazel was not a weather balloon, but was part of a top-secret balloon program intended to detect Soviet nuclear tests, called Project Mogul. It's certainly understandable why they would keep it so secret. Obviously, you don't want uh, public knowledge about your capabilities for listening in on Soviet nuclear testing. So the argument that you know, Project Mogul would be a viable explanation to me certainly makes sense. While Project Mogul did explain the strange silvery objects found by the rancher, it didn't account for the tales of alien bodies found nearby. Two years later, in 1997, the government offers a second explanation as well as Project Mogul. In the 1940s, the Air Force was also running tests on high-altitude parachutes, often using full-sized human replicas. The government claims that what locals saw were not alien life forms, but crash test parachute dummies. Could this six-foot-tall test dummy really have been mistaken by excited locals for an alien being? I don't think I'd mistake him for something not of this earth. Or were dummies like this one the linchpin in one of the biggest alleged cover-ups in history? We may never know. But for Julie, not knowing is no reason to stop wondering. I don't care if you believe or don't believe. The museum's goal is for you to think outside the box and walk out kind of going, maybe. We're looking up. Why can't they be looking down? And it's this mere possibility that continues to draw visitors to the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, New Mexico, for the chance to believe the unbelievable. 
Across the country at the Dental Museum in Baltimore, Maryland, is another object that has long been the source of myth and speculation. But the real story behind this antique artifact may just change what you know about America's most famous icon. Next on Mysteries at the Museum. Baltimore, Maryland. One of America's oldest cities and seaports, Baltimore was a stage on which the birth of our country played out. In fact, in 1776, it briefly served as the new nation's capital. And at the Smithsonian-affiliated Museum of Dentistry, there is one artifact more intimately involved in our nation's early history than any other in the city. It is this lower half of a set of 18th century dentures. But why are they here? What do these 200-year-old teeth have to do with American history? The answer lies with these dentures' illustrious owner, first president and founding father, George Washington. Washington was a great American hero. He's a father of our nation. He was an imposing gentleman. He stood six foot three. In fact, some have said that he commanded the attention in any crowd. When most of us think of George Washington, we conjure an image of the austere, patrician, man of few words that we know from portraits and history books. But was this really Washington? Was he truly the grim-faced figure his portraits imply? Or is there another explanation? The answer may lie in the most unusual place, his teeth. Washington suffered almost his entire adult life from the rapid loss of his teeth, beginning when he was 22. And while most of us have heard the popular schoolyard tale of George Washington's wooden dentures, dentist and museum curator Dr. Scott Swank can dispel this myth once and for all. Unequivocally, George Washington's dentures were not made from wood. They were made from ivory. What most people don't know is that these famous false teeth may be the reason why our lasting impression of George Washington is of a stern statesman. March 4th, 1793, Philadelphia. President Washington is being sworn in for his second term of office. To the surprise of everyone present, he goes on to deliver what would become the shortest inaugural address in the history of the presidency. His first inaugural address was long, in like seven paragraphs. The second inaugural address was two paragraphs, very short. And this is a period when men make their names on speeches, standing up for hours at a time delivering addresses to their constituency. And to have Washington stand up and make such a terse statement is odd, to say the least. Why was this address so brief? One possibility could be his false teeth. If you go back and read letters um, from people that were close to Washington, sometimes they'll mention that Washington was uh, in a particularly foul mood, and it seems to have been from a tooth that was aching. But in the late 1700s, before electric drills and Novocaine, dentists only had one solution for a toothache. Primary treatment at that time was, I've got a toothache, this tooth's bothering me, take it out. There was very little effort made to, to save a tooth. And in Washington's case, 
This resulted in a tooth removal a year. By the time he was 40, he was wearing a half plate of dentures. And by the time he becomes president in 1789, he only has one tooth left. At this point, President Washington's only choice is to commission a full set of dentures or deliver his speeches toothless. For their day, these dentures were top of the line. Each tooth is painstakingly hand-carved in a single piece of ivory, attached to a base, and then fastened together by a metal spring. But the 18th century's best dentures were not without complications. The springs kind of hold them in place, so every time you open your mouth, the spring wants to push the denture apart. So it couldn't have been an easy feeling to get used to. In fact, George Washington would have had to actively bite down on his dentures to keep them in place. If he relaxed his jaw, the springs and the false teeth would force his mouth to pop open. This is reflected, I think, in some of the portraits that we see, the very stern face, the clamped jaw. It's almost as though he's doing everything possible to keep his dentures in his mouth. When he is sworn in a second time in 1793, Washington's ill-fitting dentures would have made it hard for him to smile, let alone give a lengthy address, inauguration or not. Inaugural addresses, speeches, what have you, Washington just didn't want to spend a lot of time talking at that point. So what was Washington really like? 200 years later, we can only speculate. But one thing is certain. Seeing George Washington's dentures at the National Museum of Dentistry in Baltimore, Maryland, provides visitors with a rare insight into the life of one of our greatest Americans and brings us one step closer to understanding the man behind the myth. Aliens and avalanches. Giants of stone and giants of steel. Deadly canines and legendary dentures. These are the mysteries at the museum. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 